We good today? Everybody ready for the message? You guys have been waiting a month for me to get to session two of the book of the Revelation. And uh, so this message is the blessing of obedience, the unveiling of Yeshua the Messiah. And we're going to continue in this. Father, we ask us to show you, show us your ways. Adonai, teach us your paths, lead us in your truth. Father, we sit at your feet. We ask that you reveal your truth to us because you are the God of our salvation and on you we wait all the day. In Yeshua's name. Amen. You all have your uh, ears to hear this morning? Good. We are going to take this book of the Revelation very slowly, Um, and it's very critical that we do that. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to successfully expand on why it's so critical for us to take it on slowly. And so if it seems like we are trudging along, um, we are not. God, uh, I I have to be obedient to God in terms of the the pace and what he wants me to share. And so we are going to sort of introduce, reintroduce the book of the Revelation. We did so four weeks ago uh, with a brief introduction. We're going to continue that introduction today and really set the foundation And we'll go through most of the first chapter of the book of the Revelation. Um, And chapter 1 begins like this. This is the Revelation. How many of you have called it the book of Revelations? Or heard it called? Right. It is the Revelation. Singular. Right? Which God gave to who? He gave to Yeshua, the Messiah so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon. He communicated it by sending his angel to his servant, Yohanan, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah as much as he saw. So as we talked about the last time, that word revelation is an unveiling. It is your opening up, you know, in the old days when we had stage performances, you would, even today, you open up the curtain and you reveal the stage. That's what that word means, the revelation. It means an unveiling. God is opening up the curtains of time. And he is unveiling his plan. Whatever the plan is that he has in the book of the Revelation, the unveiling, that's what he's doing. He's opening up the curtain so that we can see something and understand something and walk in something that we previously may not have. Okay? And so, what is this unveiling? What is he revealing what is he opening the curtain to for us to see and and we see that so that he could show his servants what must happen and that word very soon is as it unfolds quickly he communicated it by sending his angel to Yohanan who bore witness uh, to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah. So, what is he bearing witness to? When Yohanan begins to write this, this letter to the seven congregations in Asia Minor, in Turkey, what is today Turkey, he is bearing witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah. And he's doing it to the degree that he can based on what he sees. So he's seeing something. 
Yohanan is having the curtain open to him too. Right? And so he's seeing things. He's seeing a series of things. And he's writing it down. And he's bearing witness as he sees it. Not to a bunch of crazy dreams. Not to help you start a web page so that you can claim that uh, you know something everybody else doesn't and that you know what 666 means because you don't and you know who the beast is because you don't and you know who the antichrist is because he's president somebody right <laughs> and you don't he is bearing witness to the word of god so be very very careful and to the testimony of God's only begotten. Amen? And then he says, Blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy, provided they obey the things written in it, for the time is near. Okay? We read that and we talked about it in terms of reading, hearing, and obeying, but I want to focus on the words, this prophecy. What is a prophecy? A prophecy, in this case, is an unveiling of something that's going to happen in the future. Or future events. This book, as we call it now, this, this writing that is specifically called the book of the Revelation, is a prophecy. It is not a history from the standpoint of talking about things in the past. It is history as it's presented before it ever happens. Now, it incorporates things that have happened in so much as those things will help, to, uh, help us to understand what the prophecy is. But this book is a prophecy. And it says, for the time is near. And that we talked about last time. That word time, there are two words in the Greek for the word time. What are they? Anybody? Kronos and Kairos. Kronos is, this is a chronometer. It's something that tells time. In other words, you can look at it and you know, unless it's broken, right? But even a broken watch tells the right time twice a day. All right, right? You can tell what time it is. That's a Kronos. This is not the word Kronos. This is the word Kairos which is a season or a kind of, of era, if you will. And so, and the word near is juxtaposed. In other words, it's, it's next to. And so, this, and, and how that comes out in the Greek is the seasons or the epochs will begin flowing. And so if this is a prophecy, I want, I want us to understand something. And, and this is the most amazing thing to me. And I think, and what I, what I hope to do every time I get up here and teach is to help us all understand that there is a, a book called the Bible that is not a book. In the, liter in the literary sense. It in and of itself is an entire unveiling. And it is, I love the way, and, and I, I have to give um, credit where credit is due. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of or know of um, Reverend Chuck Missler. Chuck Missler 
um, passed away in the early 2000 or late 1990s, I can't remember, but um, was a, an am amazing Bible teacher um, who himself was an engineer and uh, led multiple companies, and then God called him into the ministry. But these are, this is his description of the scriptures. And it's an integrated message system. 66 books that is an unveiling of a message to us. Over 40 authors... And over several thousand years, this integrated message system has been given to us, and this is where it blows my pea brain, from outside of our time-space dimension. In other words, whoever wrote this, and we know who did, who gave it to these 40-plus authors, who created, you know, wrote these 66 separate books, over several thousand years, sees the past, present, and future all at the same time. Right? And this is, and what I was starting to say is, when I get up here and teach, what I hope comes out clear is, as we bring scriptures from Genesis and, and the epistles and and you know, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Gospels, and, and the Psalms, and, you know, the book of the Revelation, and it all begins to speak one message that is absolutely integrated, logical from God's perspective, and connected. Isaiah 46 says this, Isaiah is talking to the house of Jacob and, and the house of Israel. He says, listen to me. How many of you know Isaiah didn't play? He was intense. You read his book a couple of times, and you realize, man, he did not play around. When God told him to say something, he didn't go edit it. <laughs> he didn't have you know, his speech writers edit it. He said, listen to me, house of Yaakov, all who remain of the house of Israel. I have borne you from birth. And it was, he's not talking from Isaiah's standpoint. He's talking from God's standpoint. Carried you since the womb till your old age. I will be the same. I will carry you until your hair is white. Tell that to those who believe Israel is not part of God's economy anymore supersessionists and replacement theologians, those who believe in doctrines of demons. Read this to them. I have made you and I will bear you. Yes, I will carry and save you. To whom will you liken me and equate me? With whom will you compare me as if we were similar? They squander the gold from their bags and weigh silver on a scale. They hire a goldsmith to make a god before which they fall down and worship. Talking about sarcasm. God, God's play, you know, he, he uses sarcasm often. It is born on shoulders and carried, then set in its place, and there it stands. <laughs> from its place, it does not move. If one cries to it, it can't answer or save anyone from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. So if God was sitting here face to face with you and said that to you, right? Remember this and stand firm. Keep it in mind, you rebels. That's me. I'm a rebel. And not a good one. Right? We're all rebellious. Remember things that happened at the beginning, long ago, that I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. At the beginning, I announce the end. Proclaim in advance things not yet done. And I say, 
that my plan will hold and I will do everything I please to do. I call a bird of prey from the east, the man I intended from a distant country. I have spoken and will bring it about. I have made a plan and I will fulfill it. Listen to me, you stubborn people so far from righteousness. I am bringing my justice nearer. It is not far away. My salvation will not be delayed. I will place my salvation in Zion, Zion, for Israel, my glory. So what is this saying? That God speaks outside of time, and He has a plan. And that plan is always surrounding this entity called Zion, Israel, Jacob. And so, if we want to understand any prophetic, any prophetic proclamation from the Bible, we have to understand it from the perspective of God's plan, the Jewish people, and Jerusalem. You cannot interpret correctly any prophetic utterance from the Scriptures unless you understand it from a Hebraic Jewish perspective standing on Mount Zion. And that includes what people call the New Testament. The New Covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, was to the same people that the original Mosaic Covenant was. Yehuda and Israel. And it was about the same thing that the original Mosaic Covenant was about, the Torah. The only thing that's different is the location. Rather than being on stones and parchment, it's on our hearts. Right? Nothing has changed. Here's the beauty. That new covenant that was made with Israel, the house of Israel, is now opened up to all believers, Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah. Right? Not a difference, just a door open for those who were outside of the covenant originally. All right, so the book of the Revelation, we went through the outline Go back a month ago and listen to the message. We're not going to get into this. We also found that if we look at the patterns in Scripture, we know that um, there are patterns that look at um, the middle point of a revelation of God as being the point that this revelation points to. And the middle of the book of the, the Revelation talks about the history of the fight for humanity's redemption. And I encourage you to read, if you weren't here a month ago, get the message, read the, chap the 12th chapter of Revelation, because that is where everything really uh, starts, if you will, in terms of understanding what else is going on in the book of the Revelation. We spoke about the characters of the book of the Revelation, and this is just six of them. These are just six of them. Um, and uh, there are several others that we'll talk about. The woman in chapter 12 is Israel. The son is Yeshua. Read it again. Again, go back to that message a month ago. We also know that there are structures in this, the book of the Revelation. And, and one of the structures is called the heptatic structure. At last count, I counted about a hundred different kinds of sevens in Scripture and dozens in the book of the Revelation alone. Okay? Coincidence? Sure. There are seven seals of a scroll. There are seven trumpets or shofars. And there are seven bowls of wrath. And we're going to get into those. And what's fascinating about it is there are six. What, how does God divide the week? Six days. 
And on the seventh day, every time we see this heptatic structure, we see six presented, and then we have a pause of an, of a, of an explanation or an expounding on something, and then we have the seventh, whether it be the seven-sealed scroll, whether it be the seven uh, shofars, or the seven bowls of wrath. After the sixth one, there's always this pause. Not a coincidence. We'll get into that at, at, you know, eventually. But we know, and, and this is really, really critical, and we talked about this last time, but I'm going to reiterate it because it is critical. <clears throat> this third verse is the key to, uh, to what we are supposed to do with the book of Revelation. It says, blessed, the only book in all of Scripture that says, if you read this, you will be blessed. There are blessings attached to all sorts of things in the Bible, but this is the only book in all of Scripture that says if you read it, but if you do more than read it, you'll be blessed. Read and hear the words of this prophecy, provided they obey the things written in it, for the time is near. Right? So, if it's a prophecy that, you know, gives us an idea of, you know, how we can know more than anybody else and know who the Antichrist is, then what do we have to obey? And if obeying the words of this prophecy brings blessings, then this is much more than a book of weird visions of the future. It must be an instruction manual. And that's exactly what it is. How many of us guys know what it's like to put something together without using an instruction manual? We just bought a little, little sauna thing. And uh, I'm like, I don't need the instructions. I mean, it's, it's, come on, I could just put it together. <clears throat> um, Sometimes we, we might get lucky and, and put things together correctly, but most of the time, like what happened when I was putting together my little sauna, um, there's like two or three pieces that are left after I thought I was finished that are actually absolutely essential to operating this thing. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we put something together without the manual and it doesn't work at all. And we can't go back and fix it very easily unless we take the whole thing apart and put it all back together again the way the manual says to put it back together again. I'm horrible at that, I, I will admit. So the worst thing that can happen, and this has happened since this letter was written, is that we put it together incorrectly and it doesn't work at all. But think about that. Forget the little tiny sauna. Multiply it exponentially when it comes to life and death issues. When it comes not just to physical, but spiritual life and death issues. If we have God's instruction manual where it tells us, obey this book, and it's not only how to survive, because I will tell you what this instruction book is. I'll give it to you right now. It is the survival manual of all of us while we wait for the, the second coming of Messiah. It's the survival manual. And as we get closer and closer to the second coming, this survival manual becomes much, much more critical to understand it. And that's why God has called us to learn about it today. Not so we can, like I said, profess that we know what the, the 666 means. No. So we know how to obey God's instruction manual. <clears throat> How?
how do we please God? We obey Him. When, uh, when we come to the end of our lives or the end of the age, and I've, I've said this before, and we, there's going to be two chairs. It's going to be you and Mashiach. And he's going to look you in the eye. And he's going to either say, well done, good and faithful servant, or he's not. And what does it mean to be a good and faithful servant? It means to follow his instructions. Ultimately, the entire purpose of the book of the Revelation is to prepare you and me for Yeshua's second coming. We will not be ready if we don't read it, if we don't... And if we read it only, we won't be ready. If we read it and hear it, we won't be ready. It's only if we read it, hear it, and obey it that we will be ready for His second coming. And that word obey is to guard, to fulfill, to hold fast, to make something so part of you that nothing can separate it from you. When you look at it and look at you, there's no space. Same thing, when, you, when you're called, this, this, it, it gives you an image of guarding a prisoner. When you're told as a guard to guard a prisoner, that prisoner is so close to you that you can't separate the two. Second Timothy, uh, Revi Shaul says this to, to his, uh, his protege. Do all you can to present yourself to God as someone worthy of His approval, as a worker with no need to be ashamed because He deals straightforwardly with the word of truth. The only thing that's going to make us feel ashamed when we sit face to face with Mashiach is if we haven't done His word. Deals straightforwardly. All Scripture is God-breathed later on in Timothy and is valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. It doesn't say puffing up our minds so that we can explain what all the visions mean. Thus, anyone who belongs to God may be fully equipped for every good... What? All right, so this is where I copied from Andy. The basis for understanding the book of the Revelation. God means what he says, and he says what he means. The scriptures are an integrated whole. Every detail is there by design. Every single detail. Every single thing that you read in the scripture is not by happenstance. We may read it and go, that's just the adjective to this important concept, but nothing is there by coincidence. Nothing is trivial. Everything in Scripture is meant for our learning. And don't believe anything that I say. Did, I'm going to say that again. Do not believe anything Daniel Robichek says. Study for yourself. Amen. I am a man. Right? I pray earnestly that that what I am teaching aligns with God's truth. But as Rabbi Greg says, the best of men are men at best. So don't believe anything that comes out of my mouth unless you've confirmed it in the Word. And, and I want to go to this, this group of Jews People, when they hear this, this scripture from the pulpit, they think, these are good Christians, these, these Bereans. Acts 17. But as soon as night fell, the brothers sent Shaul and Selah off to Berea. As soon as they arrived, they went to the church. Synagogue. 
Now the people here were of nobler character than the ones in Thessalonica. They eagerly welcomed the message, checking the New Testament. The Tanakh. Every day to see if the things Shaul was saying were true. Luke says these were of nobler character. Why? Because they eagerly welcomed the message. That's great. But they didn't swallow it hook, line, and sinker. They welcomed it. You can't hear from God unless you're welcoming the message. So don't shut me out right away. <laughs> However, check the Tanakh. Check the Scriptures every day to see if the things Robichek was saying were true. So we talked about this, the, the methods of interpreting Revelation. There are so many, and this is where I, I you know, this is why I, I spoke about the instruction manual, because again, obedience means that there are instructions that we have to obey. So if this is a book we are to obey, this is instructions. And yet, there is an entire world of, of theologians and of entire denominations that interpret this as something very different than an instruction manual. The idealist, which actually is most of the historical faith-based denominations, see it as a complete spiritual allegory. In other words, nothing is really true, either prophetically or historically. It's all allegorical. It's all about God's goodness and, and Satan's evil and all that. Then there are the preterists who believe that it is just about the events of the first century and, and the Roman interaction with first century believers. What did we say? What, what, did, what did Yeshua call this book? He said it was a book of prophecy. Prophecy. Not past history. And there are the historicists that, that interpret this, this book as a broad view of history, symbolically of the church. And, and so they see it as in part prophetic, but it's, a, it's an unveiling of the history. Now, I will tell you that this book is filled with allegory. This book is really does talk a lot about the first century believers, especially when it comes to the seven letters. And that this does unveil the history of the church in advance. So these people have it part. And then there is the futurist, which is entirely prophetic, believing that the book of Revelation is entirely about future events, and that it is best applied as referring to the events leading up to the end of the age. And so if you were going to label me anything, you can label me a, a futurist because it really is about blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy. However, <clears throat> what is the book of the Revelation about? And really, what is the entire Bible about? It's the unveiling of the redemption plan of God from Genesis to the Revelation, the grace, the love of God, the mercy of God. And that will be ultimately fulfilled at Yeshua's second coming. There are 1,845 references to the Messiah's rule on earth, which hasn't happened yet physical rule on the throne of David in the Tanakh. Seventeen of the books of the Tanakh give prominence to that. In the New Covenant writings 
of the 216 chapters in, that new co- in those New Covenant writings, there are 218 references to the second coming, and it's mentioned in 23 of the 27 books. How, how many prophecies are there of his first coming, of his second coming? It's interesting to note that for every prophecy of Yeshua's first coming, there are about eight prophecies about his second coming. Now, his second coming is unimportant unless his first coming exists, right? But there's something about his second coming that, number one, has a lot of Jews fooled into thinking that's the only coming, And they're still waiting for their Messiah. And there's something about the second coming of Yeshua that's critical to us. And guess what? You're born for such a time as this. Why? We are winding down. There is nothing in history that is like the days that we live in now. Are we good? All right, that was my intro. <clears throat> um, you guys weren't planning on going anywhere today, right? We have to be out here by 2 because the church uh, comes to clean, so I'm going to have to wind down by at least you know, quarter to 2. <laughs> Verse 4, from Yohanan 2. Who's he writing this? Who, who is Yohanan taking what he's seeing and, and from the word of God and from the testimony of Yeshua to all that he is seeing, and he is giving it to the seven messianic communities in the province of Asia. Grace and shalom to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the earth's kings, to him, the one who loves us, who has freed us from our sins at the cost of his blood, who has caused us to be a kingdom that is kohanim for God his Father. Yohanan is is pouring out the, the reality, the unveiling that this is from God the Father, this is from the Spirit, and the preeminence of Yeshua, the Messiah, is, fills this book. And it says, To Him be the glory and the rulership forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, including those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the land will mourn Him. And so... Again, we are framing the book of the Revelation with the understanding that this is all leading up to His second coming. All right? Nothing new. Here's the, here's the fascinating part. You cannot, and I, and I said this about you know, the Jewish perspective in general, but you cannot understand the book of the Revelation unless you first have delved into, dived into, and, and understood the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, at a minimum. How many of you have studied the book of Daniel backwards and forwards and know every single allusion and idiom in the book of Daniel and, and can, can represent it and understand it as well as a book of instructions, not just prophecy. So if we can't, then we're playing games with the book of the Revelation, which was written first. In fact, there are literally hundreds of allusions to scriptures in the prophets that fill all the allusions and the idioms in the book of the Revelation. Daniel 7, coming with the clouds of heaven. I talked about this last time. 
Zechariah, and this talks about his second coming. Zechariah 12, and they will look to me whom they pierce. They will mourn for him, one who mourns for an only son. One verse, and we have allusions to two major prophetic events that Daniel and Zechariah have outlined. And, and Yohanan mentions it in one scripture. So if we don't understand what the 7th the chapter of Daniel and the 12th chapter of Zechariah are talking about, then we, we, we can't even start the book of the Revelation. I want to go too deep in this, the, the um, constructs that, that we understand eschatology. How many of you know what eschatology means, right? Eschatos, the end, ology, study. Real simple, the study of the end. There are three main perspectives when it comes to the study of the last days. There's the amillennial, which means they don't believe that the millennium actually exists, that we're, we're probably in the millennium right now, and that it's just all allegorical. Postmillennial, in other words, and this has to do with when Jesus is coming back, when Yeshua is returning, right? Post-millennial means that he's going to come back after the millennium. Some thousand-year reign. That's when everything is going to, going to change for the better. And then there's the pre-millennial, which means that he's going to return. His second coming happens before whatever this millennium is. A thousand years described either allegorically or literally in the book of the Revelation. And what you can do is if you look at a, a linear understanding of these um, approaches to eschatology, if you're amillennial, you're all the way on, this is all just a bunch of allegory. This is all just not real. And if you're premillennial, you're pretty much, this is literal. God says what he says, God means what he means, and we have to interpret it literally. Now, if you take the premillennial, which I think most of us kind of fall under, we're here, right, in the West, and, and we're, we've been taught and brought up in churches that teach um, premillennial coming of Christ, there are all sorts of different subcategories of premillennialists. There's the pre-tribulationists, which is... Most of evangelical Christianity, right? The pre-tribulational rapture. There's the mid-tribulationists, where Jesus is going to come back in two phases, just like he, the pre-tribulational says, but it's going to be somewhere in the middle of the tribulation, which is this sort of seven-year period or something, and that's when he comes. And then there's the post-tribulational, where at the end of the tribulation he's coming and then amongst the post-tribulational, there's the pre-wrath and the post-wrath. And the only response I have is, oi vey. Really? So we're going to study the Scripture. And we're going to go into the Scripture in depth. We're not going to attest to any of this, although there's truth in all of their perspectives, some truth. We just want to know what the scriptures say, because we want to be obedient to the scripture, right? And so, this book of the Revelation unveils, really, God's plan of redemption in a way that summarizes the, the unveiling of that plan of redemption throughout the rest of scripture. It's amazing. It's packed into these 22 chapters, the entire plan of redemption, that, you know, 65 books revealed. But in order to understand the plan of redemption in this one 22-chapter book, we have to understand the plan of redemption from the other 65 books' perspective. You cannot interpret the book of the Revelation in and of itself. This is an unveiling of the glory, the kingship, and the preeminence of Yeshua. This is an unveiling of the climax of God's plan in the end of this age. 404 verses in the book of the Revelation, and it contains 800 allusions from the Tanakh. 
in 404 version, uh, verses. So if you don't understand those 800 allusions from the Tanakh, forget about it, as we say in New Jersey. Forget about it. Don't even try to interpret the book of the Revelation. As we talked about last time, it's the apocalyptic literature's revelation of the unseen world as it impacts our world. How many of you know there's an unseen world and what happens in this world is impacted tremendously by what's going on. And there is a great war going on. And that war is over your soul. Even you as a believer. Now, I'm not going to get into the seven letters to the seven congregations in Asia Minor because we already went into that in depth. And if you weren't here at, C at CBY at that time, I will send you out an email with a link to those messages. There were 12 messages that we studied, those seven letters, 12 or 13, I forget. Um, and, uh, I mean, we went deep, 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 deep into those seven letters, and I'm not going to go there. But what we found out was that those seven letters are letters to the congregations at that time that pertain to us today just as much and tell us how we can avoid completely compromising God's Word and falling away. And it's going to be ever more easy to fall away and ever more difficult to follow Him in these coming days unless you are in it, hook, line, and sinker. Roots deep. Those seven letters are an instruction manual on how not to compromise during the toughest times. And so I would encourage you to go back. <clears throat> this book is full of, I said, we have to interpret it literally, but I mean, come on, the dragon, the beast, do we interpret that literally? You bet. But there is an idiomatic foundation for those literal interpretations. And what do I mean by an idiom? What's the definition of an idiom? And if you don't understand that the book of Revelation is full of idioms, then just replace the M with a T, and that's probably where you're closer to. Only one person got that, because he knows how to spell. All right. What's an idiom? Idiom is a type, this is right out of Webster's or one of the dictionaries, I can't remember. An idiom is a type of phrase or expression that has a meaning that can't be deciphered by defining the individual words. A phrase or expression containing a figurative meaning that differs from the phrase's literal meaning. The word idiom is derived from the ancient Greek word idioma, which means a peculiar phraseology. So let me give you an example of idioms. It's raining cats and dogs. It's literally raining very hard, but it's not literally raining cats and dogs. So we interpret it literally. That means it's raining really heavily. Does that make sense? Once in a blue moon. Has anybody ever seen a true blue moon? Okay, that's the whole point. <laughs> it's rare. But it literally means it's rare. See the light. Under the weather. Am I under the weather? Up in the air. I don't know. It's just, it's all up in the air. Stabbed in the back. That's a whole other message. Anyway, takes two to tango. Right? Kill two birds with one stone. Piece of cake. Cost an arm and a leg. Break a leg. Hit the hay. You know, all those are idioms, but they describe an actual precise, literal event or other meaning, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so continuing with the, the first chapter, yes, amen, I am the A and the Z, says Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who is, who was, and who is coming. Who's that an allusion to? Is that talking about Yeshua? That phrase, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, is actually an idiom for Exodus 3. Eye asher eye. Who is eye asher eye? Moshe said to God, Look, when I appear before the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What am I to tell them? God said to Moshe, Eye asher eye. There is no literal translation in English. We try, I am, I will be, I might be, I was. Eye asher eye is a statement outside of time, as is the one who is, who was, and who is coming. The same concept as I am the beginning and the end. Because there is no beginning and end. That's the whole idiomatic understanding of that. We're talking about God in all His fullness. The name which cannot be uttered. I don't care how many times you confess that yod heh vav or Yehovah or this or that is the name of God. The name of God has no capability. There's nothing in our language that is capable of verbalizing eye asher eye. He goes on, I, Yochanan, am a brother of yours and a fellow sharer. And this is the key. Listen to this, a key. A fellow sharer in the suffering, kingship, and perseverance that come from being united with Yeshua. I had been exiled to the island called Patmos, for having proclaimed the message of God and borne witness to Yeshua. He was doing his job. And he got sent, exiled, to an island. I came to be, it says, in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. When's the day of the Lord? Depends what day you go to church, right? It's Sunday. Saturday. What does the day of the Lord represent? Bingo. I came to be in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a, not a chronos. It is a kairos. It is a time period. It is when things are going to go nuts, crazy, right before he actually arrives. And so that's what he's saying. Now, if he's saying any particular day of the week, we know that it's Shabbat. Because at this time, there was no such thing as Sunday, go to church. Right? But this is talking about the day of the Lord. He was in the Spirit in a prophetic way. And I heard behind me a, vo a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down what you see on a scroll and send it to the seven messianic communities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So who is this I, Yochanan? He was born in Bethsaida in the Galilee. He's the son of Zebedee and Salome. He grew up in the fishing business. He was partners in that business with Kepha, Peter, and Andrew, and focused on that business on the north coast of the Galilee. He was actually an early disciple, right, of John the Baptist, Yohanan the Immerser. And believe it or not, he and his family were really well connected. I mean, he was, he was connected to Nicodemus, you remember that, in the, in the Gospels. And he was connected to the Kohanim. He was, you know... Well connected, thank you. He was also one of the inner circle of Yeshua. Right? He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there when Yeshua took the, them aside and told them the entire history of the future of Israel in the Mount of Olives on Matthew 25 and Luke 21. 
He was there as a, as a separate uh, group with, uh, with Yeshua in the Garden of uh, Getshmane, Gethsemane. And a little thing that we forget, Yeshua himself assigned him to take care of Mary. John 19.25, nearby Yeshua's execution stake stood his mother, his mother's sister Miriam, the wife of Clopha, and Miriam from Magdala. When Yeshua saw his mother and the Talmud whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Mother, this is your son. Then he said to the Talmud, this is your mother. And from that time on, the Talmud took her into his own home. John, you know, there are special and then there are special. We wonder why John was tasked with giving this so critically important book. So we know he was exiled to, uh, to the island of Patmos by the uh, emperor Domitian. And, and I don't know if we all knew this, but, you know, Domitian was the brother of Titus. Anybody know who Titus was? Titus was the one who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. He was the Roman Caesar, and, and his son, right, Prince Titus, was the one who came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And after this time on Patmos, when... After Domitian was, was uh, I believe, killed, murdered, don't hold me to that, Trajan became Caesar, and Trajan, I guess, didn't have that an much animosity towards John, and he released him. And I don't know if you knew this either, but in studying this, John spent his last years before Patmos and even after Patmos in Ephesus, Right? And so he was very familiar with these seven congregations. Ephesus was the closest city to the island of Patmos. And all the other six congregations in Asia Minor surrounded Ephesus. And he's very familiar with not only these congregations, but the leaders of these congregations. And he said, I turned around to see who was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven gold menorahs. And among the menorahs was someone like a son of man wearing a robe down to his feet and a gold band around his chest. Daniel 7.13, I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven, someone like a son of man. He approached the ancient one and was led in his presence. Daniel 10.5, when I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen wearing a belt made of fine ufaz gold. Anybody know what the cha chapter 7 of Daniel and chapter 10 of Daniel really were about? But I mean the details. Why does he even allude to that, to those chapters? His head and hair were as uh, white as snow. Sorry, white as snow white wool, his eyes like a fiery flame, his feet like burnished brass refined in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. Daniel 10.6, his body was like burl, his face looked like lightning, and his eyes like fiery torches, his arms and feet were the color of burnished bronze, and when he spoke it sounded like the roar of a crowd. They're seeing similar visions. Ezekiel 43.2, there I saw the glory of God, of, of the God of Israel approaching from the east. His voice was like the sound of rushing water and the earth shone with his glory. What was Ezekiel chapter 43 about? And so, the most important place to start when, you're, when we're studying and learning the book of the Revelation is... the book of Daniel, right? You mean we're not going to go into the book of the Revelation? <laughs> we can't. We can't start in the book of the Revelation. We have to start with the foundation. And there were two men in Scripture that were called greatly loved of God. Two men. 
Oh. Anybody know who those two men were? What a coincidence. Daniel 10, I heard his voice speaking, and when I heard him speaking, I fell down in a faint with my face to the ground. Then a hand touched me and raised me, tottering to my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a greatly loved man. How many of us are loved by God? Right? For God so loved the world. How many of us does God say in Scripture, you are greatly loved? I mean, I don't know about you, but the last time I was in a lion's den, I wasn't that successful. The last time I was in front of a king to interpret a dream when he didn't tell me the dream itself, you are greatly loved. Now pay attention to the words I'm saying to you and stand upright, for it is to you that I have been sent now. John 13, one of his Talmudim, the one Yeshua particularly loved, same word. It's actually the, the word in the Hebrew in Daniel, uh, beloved, um, and the word particularly loved in uh, the Greek is the word beloved, was reclining close beside him. John is called the beloved one. And so, as I said, we have to understand um, the prophecies in these other books before we try to interpret this compact book that, that actually unveils the entire um, redemption plan of God, but alludes in almost every single verse to the previous prophetic books. And so, not next week, but the following week, we are going to get a little bit into the book of Daniel. We're not going to go through the entire book, but we're going to go through important chapters and passages in Daniel by which we cannot otherwise correctly and accurately interpret the book of the Revelation. All right? Is that okay? You forgive me for that? Okay, nobody said yes. All right. I'm forgiven. Good. All right, I'm going to stop there. Um, thank you for uh, pushing through a little bit later than usual. Y'all good? Any questions, thoughts, comments? What? A preacher is asking for comments? <laughs> yeah, once in a while. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you basically, you know, I think summarize uh, with the addition of obviously the new birth, but, you know, with the new birth comes the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Yeshua said, will show us the truth and things to come. There is only one interpreter of Scripture. And that's the, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And in order to have the Ruach HaKodesh, you need to be born again. So absolutely, hit it on the head. If anybody's not born again, none of this is going to make much sense. It may be great, fun, curiosity, you know, fillers. It may be fascinating, but it's really not going to make sense. Agree 100%. Um, and, and my hope, really a lot of my point for, for this message was let's forget about everything we learned, everything we know, and let's start from scratch. And let's look at this book just 
with the, as they say in French, la table rase, the, the white sheet, right? The white uh, tablet, and completely empty. And let's start from scratch and see where we get. Now, obviously, we come to anything with our own preconceived ideas and notions. But let's, to the best of our ability, put some of those aside and, and start building the blocks from the foundation up. And that's why we can't start with the book of the Revelation. We have to start with what the book of the Revelation alludes to um, in, often in, in its idioms and so forth. Amen? All right. Stand with me. Join hands, arms, shields. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, buddy. Come on, y'all. Come to the middle. Oh, hello. Come to the middle. Join hands. Hallelujah. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Yevarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavilecha v'chunecha Yesah Adonai panavilecha v'yasem lecha Shalom